Let's pray as we stand. For everything cries holy to you, Lord. Our Heavenly Father, the passage we've heard is a familiar passage. And Lord, we want us to speak, we want you to speak to us through your Holy Spirit. Speak to us, Lord, as a church. Speak to us, Lord, as individuals. Give us hearts to hear what you have to say to us. And let us be changed, Lord, through what you have done for us. Amen. Please, have a seated. I have a friend in Ghana, and her name is Nancy. She was a Muslim from a poor family, and one day she got hold of a Bible and she read it. And she decided that the Bible was written before the Quran, and therefore it must be true. And she became a Christian through reading the Bible. Not long after, she headed down to Accra in order to apply to become a policewoman. She was 28, and while she was in Accra, she suffered a massive stroke that paralyzed her down her right-hand side. She was brought home, and over the next few months, she taught herself to walk again. But she never regained the use of her right, right arm. Now, your right hand in Ghana is extremely important because it's your clean hand. To pass anything or receive anything or certainly to shake hands with somebody with your left hand is deeply offensive. So not only did Nancy have to cope with her disability, the loss of a career, the probable loss of ever getting married, she had to cope with the stigma of her disability too. And she said to me, Penny, I went to church looking for comfort. And all they did was ask me for money. They said to me that if I gave the Lord money, he would bless me. And she went home deeply, deeply discouraged. And a friend went to visit her and prayed with her and encouraged her and took her along to her place of worship. And today, Nancy is a Jehovah's Witness. For Nancy, Jesus is a God. He is not God. She had gone to church to seek comfort amongst the people of God and she had found a marketplace, a place where she could buy God's blessing. That's the prosperity gospel, and it's rampant across Africa. In verse 13, it says, The time for the Jewish Passover was approaching, and Jesus and his disciples had gone up to Jerusalem. And on reaching Jerusalem, they entered the temple. And I think in order to understand what happened that day, we need to look at what Jesus should have found and compare it to what he did find. What should Jesus have found in the temple that day? What was the purpose of the temple? What was the purpose of the people who were within the temple? Simply put, the temple has a fourfold purpose. It represented the presence of God amongst his people. It represented the holiness of God. It reminded people of the mercy of God and it pointed to the promise of God. Those four things, and I'm going to deal with them very briefly. Firstly, it represented the presence of God amongst his, uh, his people. From the beginning of time, God created man and woman to have a relationship with him. We see it as he walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of, of Eden. We see it as he led the people out of Egypt as a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. 
And God became represented amongst the people of Israel in the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was carried with them. And eventually they made a tent for the Ark to dwell, and then a temple. And the Ark of the Covenant was placed within the temple, and it reminded the people of God's desire to be close to them, to be in relationship with those he created. And so when Jesus and his disciples came into the temple that day, they came because it was the focal point of God's presence amongst his people. It was the place that people went to worship God, to draw near to him. And the temple reminded people of God's holiness. God created man and woman like him, perfect, without sin. But we know that Adam and Eve chose death. God had given them every tree in the Garden of Eden, and there must have been thousands, but just one tree they were not allowed to eat the fruit from, otherwise they would die. And that tree was the knowledge of good and evil. Well, they already had the knowledge of good. And so that all they were hankering after was to be like God and have the knowledge of evil. And they chose evil, they chose the death over the source of life. God is holy. And Adam and Eve could no longer walk with God in the garden. Man and woman destroyed that relationship when they rejected God and chose to go their own way. So the temple was a representation of God God amongst his people. And the temple was also a reminder that God is holy. And when Jesus and his disciples entered the courts, they would go into the outer courts and then the inner courts, and then there would be the heart of the temple, and it was called the Holy of Holies. And that was the place that God was said to dwell. And it was divided from the rest of the temple by a thick curtain, and no one could enter the Holy of Holies apart from the high priest and him only once a year. Such was the holiness of God. The temple represented God's presence and God's holiness. It was a place of reverence that God should choose to dwell amongst his people and a place of awe at the holiness of God. And Jesus and his disciples came to the temple that day because the temple was the focal point of God's presence and his holiness. And thirdly, it was the, it was the reminder, the place of God's mercy. The psalmist in Psalm 5 says, But I, by your great mercy, will come into your house. In reverence will I bow down towards your holy temple. God is holy, but in his love he made a way for woman and man to come back to him. And we see that mercy, we see that love right from the beginning. God took the initiative for man and woman to come back to him. We remember Adam and Eve in the garden. We remember that when they sinned, they knew their shame and they tried to cover their shame famously with fig leaves. They hid from God. They knew they could not stand in his presence. But it was God who took the initiative. It was God who killed the animal and covered their shame with animal skins. From the beginning, God took the initiative to enable men and women to continue to have a relationship with him. And from the very beginning, it required the shedding of blood. Man and woman deserved death, and death did come. But God chose to allow the death of an animal to die on their behalf. And we see it more clearly in Leviticus chapter 1. God spoke to Moses, and he says of the animal sacrifice that was required... The man is to offer a male sheep or cow without defect. 
He must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. This is God speaking. So that it will be acceptable to me. He is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. God, in his mercy, accepted the blood of an animal on behalf of men and women so that through the shedding of the animal's blood they could draw near to God. The animal took their place in order that their sins could be forgiven. God's initiative, his plan, his mercy. Can you see how precious that journey to the temple should have been? As Jesus and his disciples entered the temple, they should have been able to approach God with awe and a reverence and a reminder that God had provided a way through sacrifice for people to approach him. And lastly and briefly, the temple reminded people of God's promise. An animal sacrifice was never going to be sufficient for the sins of men and women. For the moment, God accepted it. But the people of Israel looked forward to the promise of God that he would send a saviour who would remove the sins of the whole world once and for all, a final and a perfect sacrifice. So you see the temple, the presence of God, the holiness of God, the mercy of God, and the promise of God. And Jesus and his disciples went into the temple and they found in verse 16 a marketplace. Instead of a place of worship, instead of a place of cleansing and forgiveness, they found a place of commerce. A place no different to the streets that they had just left outside the temple. Instead of a place of awe and reference and a place to reflect on one's need for sacrifice to approach a holy God, there was the bellowing of cattle and the bleating of sheep and the cry of the stall sellers. What about the people in charge of the temple? What was their purpose? Well, their purpose was to draw people near to God. Their purpose was to make sure that the worship was pure and came through the right sacrifice. And instead of assisting the people to come to God, they hindered them. And instead of pointing to God, they were enjoying the profit of the market. And you know, as an aside, it is likely that the marketplace was in the court of the Gentiles because that was the first court that you come to. The court was for those who were outsiders, who had come to believe in the God of the Jews. And they weren't allowed to go any further than this. So this court was their place of worship and it had been turned into a market. We're beginning to see just how offensive this location of a market was to the Lord Jesus. And what did Jesus do? It says Jesus made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Imagine the scene. He sits there, he makes this whip. People were probably watching him. And he started to crack it across the rumps of the sheep and the cattle alike. And they would have run bleating and bellowing in all directions, being sheep. They would have done. And money would have been everywhere. Witness the authority of Jesus. Such authority that everyone was rooted to the spot and rendered speechless. No one spoke, no one moved, no one could. 
Behold, John says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Rabbi, exclaimed Nathaniel in chapter 1, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Behold the man who turns water into wine. And who can do that apart from the creator of water in the first place? Emmanuel, God with us. That day the people witnessed God the Son in his father's house, the wrath of God manifest in God the Son. Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? You see, the desecration of the temple was deeply personal to Jesus. He didn't say God's house, he said my father's house. And it was if he was saying to the the authorities, you are hindering those that God commanded you to care for in particular from approaching God. You are hindering the Gentile from drawing close to him. Your mandate was to reveal God to these people. You were supposed to be different. That's how people would know God, by watching you. But you have used my father's house for your profit and hindered those he called you to reveal him to. God's people, no difference. And that's what the church had done in Ghana to Nancy. God's people, no difference. The Gentile came in from the outside into the house of God and was met by the people of God. And there was no difference, and it was an offence to the Lord Jesus. Having witnessed the authority of God the Son, the people, it says, most likely it would be the temple authorities, demanded proof of that authority. Isn't that interesting? They did not question the presence of his authority. That was evidence to all. Rather, they wanted a sign which would justify such authority. You see, in cleansing the temple, Jesus had just fulfilled the purposes for which they were put in charge of the temple to regulate its practices, to ensure the purity of worship and the access of people to their God. And if these things were anywhere close to their hearts, their consciences would have been pricked by what they had just seen Jesus do. This would have, they would have seen it as the sign that it was, the sign they were now asking for. But their hearts were centered on the material and they had lost sight of the divine fourfold purpose of the temple of God. And we note the contrast, don't we, in the responses to Jesus' actions. Those in charge of the temple whose hearts were so dark, so earthly-minded that they are blind in the face of all they've just seen. They are deeply unbelieving. And we know people in that situation. And our hearts cry out for those people. And there are the hearts of the disciples being awakened gradually to the way which this man is fulfilling scripture before their eyes. Still not fully understanding, in verse 17, but open to receiving and later to believing. And maybe that better describes the hearts of some of us here. They demand a sign and Jesus points to himself. The presence of the true temple. It's an unbelievable question based on unbelief. And Jesus gives it an incredible answer. In John 2:19, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And John tells us that the temple that Jesus spoke of was his body. 
Let's not dwell on the retort of the temple leaders. It's, of no, it's so earthly-minded, it's of no heavenly use. Let's focus on the answer that Jesus has given. He is saying the fourfold purpose of the temple is found in him. In Jesus, we have the full manifestation of God. In Jesus, we have the word become flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. In him, we see the holiness of God. He was perfect without sin. In him, we see the mercy of God, the provision of the perfect sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And in him was the promise of God, the promised saviour, God the Son, who through his death, through the shedding of his blood, would cleanse people from their sin. But Jesus did not stay dead. Through his resurrection from the dead, he would conquer that which Adam and Eve had set in place. He would conquer death itself. It's an incredible moment, and it is missed by all. It's missed by the temple authorities, and it's missed for a while by the disciples. Let us not miss it. Let us not miss the fullness of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus points to himself as the new temple in whom we are made right with God through the cleansing of our sin by his blood in our place. And Jesus is the one through whom we can now approach the Holy of Holies and pass right through that curtain into the very presence of God. Destroy this temple, he says, and they did. And I will raise it again in three days. And he did. Jesus is the new temple. Through him, your relationship with God, my relationship with God is completely restored. But a response is needed. You see, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so that all who believe in him shall not die, but will have everlasting life. Our responsibility, your responsibility, is to believe. Friends, if you have left baby Jesus in the manger at Christmas, look upon him now. And he is saying, I am the new temple. I am the presence of God dwelling amongst you. In my body, the holiness of God is clearly seen. And the mercy of God is fully revealed because my blood was shed in the place of yours. Full payment has been made for your sin. I am the one promised. I am the promise of God. And for those of you tonight who have not come to that point of believing in the Lord Jesus, will you believe in him? I know that appeal has has come across for the last few weeks. And I want to assure you that the promise of God is certain. When you believe in him, God looks upon you and he will see you as perfect because Jesus has taken away your sin. He is the new temple. Will you believe? Will you believe in him? It is your decision and it's between you and the Lord Jesus. And what about us who do believe? What is Jesus saying to us? Well, we heard it this morning. Go and be a blessing. Our mandate is the same as the people of Israel, to point people to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us make sure that when people see us, 
When people come to know us, they see something different from those outside. You see, in verses 21 to 25, it tells us that Jesus did not entrust himself to those whose faith was built on the witnessing of wonders, because such faith is fragile and needs to deepen and grow. Jesus does, however, entrust himself to us. We are his church, and he has entrusted us with the work of pointing people to God through him. Oh, let's make sure that every part of our lives we are doing that. I haven't got a happy ending for Nancy's story. Well, not yet, anyway. But I do know that her only hope is the Lord Jesus. And I know that our only hope for those of us who believe and those of us who don't yet, it is still the Lord Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us, the new temple. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for coming to earth, from leaving your Father's side, so that through you, through your blood and through your death, we can be made clean and brought into the very presence of a holy God. And Lord God, thank you for sending Jesus Thank you for loving us so much that in creating us for relationship, you, want, you continue to want a relationship with us. Father God, we are humbled and we want to say thank you. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he is our hope. He is our only hope. Thank you that he has done it all. It is only for us to come and to believe. Thank you, Father. Amen.